Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I'm Aaron Cameron. With me, as always, is Adam Pawatic. We're recording live at the Global Property Market Forum as part of a real estate forum series. Our guest today is a gentleman by the name of Jim Costello, who is the Senior Vice President of Real Capital Analytics. Welcome, Jim. Thank you for having me. So how did you get into real estate? It's a long path. I grew up in real estate, actually. Okay. My father... Living, living inside a house. <laughs> yeah. Well... Oh Sorry. Oh Too boy. literal? Okay. My bad. My bad. A dad joke, for yeah. sure. I know. I have a dad. I'm allowed. Well, my dad is really, you know, where I started in that. My first job was in eighth grade. My dad sat me down in front of our Apple II computer yeah. with a stack of deeds. He worked in the land title business in the United States. And he sat me down in front of a stack of deeds and told me, okay, you're going to start entering some of this information to something called a spreadsheet. And uh, you know, was going through and was told, you know, here's the tax parcel ID you're putting in this column. You're going to type the county name in this column and just... Uh, sounds cr- riveting. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> totally. You were, but, an, you were an economist from the womb, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, you know, just data, data. <laughs> yeah. So I was working from that side. But in terms of a professional... It again, it's a school issue. I was finishing up grad school. I needed a, a job to start paying some bills. I had my first job out of college. I was working for an urban planning agency outside of Chicago. And uh, so I had this bent towards thinking about local areas, thinking about place. And then you know, I, I knew I wanted to combine that somehow with economics. I needed a job just to kind of pay bills while I was finishing up papers. And I got a job with CBRE in Chicago. And literally, I was hired to be the guy who could turn the computer on. I applied for one job. I didn't get the job, but they called me in for an interview. And it was just a helpful practice and just meeting people. But the fellow who I sent my resume to, he said, listen, uh, I'm kind of curious. I've never seen this before. On your resume here, this U15425 at uicvm.edu, what's that? (laughs) Oh, that's an email address. Email. What's email? And so I got tagged as the guy who knew something about computers. And I started working for them doing a project where I was managing a lease database. And I finished up school. And one day, my boss called me into his office and said, hey, why don't you close the door? And so my antenna went up because right away, I'm like, it's an open office kind of setting. Closing the door, there's something going on here. And he's like, hey, you know, things aren't going as great as we thought for our business unit. And so my heart's starting to go like, oh, that's great. (laughs) Here it comes. So I took the liberty of sending your resume on to Ray Tordo in Boston. He runs an economic analysis shop for CBRE. Everyone here likes you. You're really productive. We think they might be a good fit there. And he helped me negotiate getting a job with these groups of economists out in Boston and loaded up the truck and drove out to Boston. The thing about it, the lesson I took from it is sort of this nature of the real estate business, sort of this chumminess of people looking out for each other and and thinking about you know who has some good skills that they can put to use elsewhere in the organization. So uh, that time in Chicago, where you know my email address just made that one little thing <laughs> that got me the attention, and from that here I am. Yeah, now you need seven programming languages to attract that kind of uh, reputation straight out of uh, university. Yeah, I mean, but things progress. I mean, it's that's just part of the nature. You know, the what's simple one day is just very complicated before. Uh, so just you know things keep progressing like that. So I guess we'll get to your company then. What's your rest of your day-to-day there? The day-to-day at Real Capital Analytics is is varied. Almost a third of the time, 
For me, it's living in a suitcase and going out and telling stories about what's happening in the commercial property markets. You know, just at this conference we're at, one of the things that I end up doing with people is comparing notes on our status on frequent flyer programs. Just you know, <laughs> yeah. How many miles have you logged this year? Exactly. But when I'm not doing that, I'm in our New York office and I'm working closely with you know, these young folks that are on our analytics team to take a look at the data and figure out, well, what are the stories that the data is showing us that we can uh, be promoting both in the talks I give and in a lot of writing I'm doing for clients. I'm doing a lot of stuff where just looking at that data, trying to figure out, well, what does it mean for anybody and what are the implications for real estate performance? So a good third of the time I'm traveling, giving talks, and then the rest I'm in the office either writing trends. Once a month, there's a big report we're putting out to clients that I'm the one doing most of the writing. And then writing for a blog that we have as well, just diving into topics that are just a little bit ad hoc. People yeah. call in with questions. Just jumping how, on long you, how long have you been doing that for, Jim? This blog. Really, just the, the, your role in general, I think, as, as, from a, as a, just your SVP role that's kind of managing or, or oh, the head sure. of, I guess you're the head of, I don't know what you would call it, the economic, the research team. Like what is the... Yeah, this, was, this is what's interesting to me. Real Capital Analytics is very egalitarian. It's a flat organization. There's Bob, the founder and owner, and then everybody else. When I was at CBRE, it was very hierarchical, structured, titles mattered a lot in terms of position, resources available. Not so much here. Most junior analysts can step up and if they have an idea, they can run with it. And when did you join Real Capital? Uh, about five years ago. Okay. Yeah. And you've been doing basically the same thing since you started? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it was brought in to do this kind of communication and helping clients understand you know, what is happening. So just jumped in and started it up right away. And maybe for our listeners, just so that they understand if they're not familiar, maybe just give a Cole's notes of what real capital analytics is, what the vision is, and, and you know why they exist and you know what your sure. purpose is. Well, the company was founded in 2000. The founder was a broker working in New York in the commercial property sales side and was frustrated about the fact that he had a bunch of friends on Wall Street that could go to a Bloomberg terminal anytime and pull up the value of the security, look at how thickly it was traded, you know, what kind of pricing was being achieved. And he was just upset that, you know, why don't we have this for real estate? You know, it's a similar, you know, type of asset class. Why isn't there anything to track his performance? So he started talking to you know, friends in the brokerage community and the sales community, and they had just had some comparables and started a simple service of just sending a spreadsheet around of sales comparables that he had pulled together. And it snowballed. He put together a team to start researching that information from uh, local government agencies around the U.S., and really started to build a big platform. In 2005, the company made a move to extend the operations globally. And we now have offices in London, Singapore, New York, Silicon Valley, and a few small co-working uh, locations where there's you know two or three people in a particular city. You know, like we have Amsterdam, talk of doing something in Sydney, you know, just different places. So we have global coverage now. And it's, you know, information trends globally that just there's no other kind of platform uh, tracking that information. So I like what you said a few times now about uh, storytelling. If I can offer unsolicited feedback about the, you know, the dozens of economists I've seen present at various forums, a lot of the times they can seem lost in their world and their understanding and it's loses the translation to a crowd that might be general real estate practitioners. Yeah. But the storytelling concept is something that I, I really connect with because when a speaker does engage in that kind of communication, it is, you know, it's, you walk out of that presentation thinking, I've really got something here. I took value out of that. 
rather than overwhelmed with a chart that has 17 different lines pointing different directions on it. Yeah, that's that point you're bringing up. That's a part of the role I play. I've got a lot of friends in the more academic side of the economics world who they do fantastic stuff, but for their ability to communicate it, it's very limited. You know, they just don't have the skill set needed to talk to someone who's a loan officer, someone who's an acquisition professional. They don't care about, you know, that type of audience doesn't care about the validity of the coefficients in your analysis <laughs> and, you know, the improvement in your methodology over the seven previous approaches uh, other academics had tried. So those are the kind of things that they have to worry about at the conferences that they go to. And I like reading that stuff and I read academic papers, but then I try and translate that through to more common language that people who have a different focus can understand and have a takeaway. I'm a translator in some sense so, too. Okay, well then let's get into more of the, yeah, the what, what are the stories? Yeah, the meat and <laughs> potatoes here. So yeah, if you're going to take you know off air, you kind of identified that your focus is sort of U.S., Canada, and a little bit of Latin America. So right. what is the headline story right now that you're telling? When I've been going out giving talks recently, I'm a little bit responsive to what people have been asking about, and they've been asking a lot about recession, concerned that a recession may be coming and that real estate's going to suffer and we're all going to die. That's sort of the... That's not true? (laughs) Well, that's kind of the theme that people bring up because they remember how bad the last downturn was. And I think part of it's also a generational issue. You know, we... 2001 was the last downturn before that. And that's... uh, We're coming up in almost 20 years when that happened. And, you know, there's a lot of people who have come into the industry since then. So there's a number of folks that we're dealing with that the only recession that they've ever worked in or you know, happened right before they started working was the global financial crisis. And from a Canadian perspective, it was not felt as significantly as it was in the States. And so the recession you might have felt 2008-9 was not that severe as compared to the early 90s here in Canada. Right. But even the early 90s here in Canada. I mean, like early 90s here in Canada, I mean, you had some sites in, here in Toronto where they went dark and the sites just sat empty for decades that developers just couldn't move it forward. That was severe. That said, a lot of the folks who were busy in the industry then, you know, that's a long time away from here. And you don't have everybody who was active in the market today wasn't necessarily working back in that time period. So, you know, lessons that you learn, you tell someone that, you know, the junior folks you're working with, you help educate them about what you went through, but that tends to fade. So memories of, you know, previous downturns you know, people tend to fight the last war and the financial crisis is what people are largely using as a roadmap for what to expect. But I don't think that the, you know, the performance in the United States will look anything in a downturn like it did during the financial crisis. The motivations of what might drive a recession would be different and uh, the stability of the financial system going into a downturn would be different as well. So what are you seeing in the data? I mean, we've had a number of, of guests on recently talking about interest rates are never going up. Interest rates are always staying flat. I've heard economists say we are at the end of cycles, not the end of the cycle, but the end of cycles and that we're not going to have, you know, or, or any kind of major recession is no longer in the cards. Like, where do you sit on that fence? I know this is kind of a crystal ball question, but maybe just kind of talk about the different factors that you're seeing in your data sets that are kind of leaning you towards one an opinion or another. Well, I mean, stepping back from that, recessions are about imbalance in the economy that needs to be worked out. And it's like, you know, you go get a massage, you get a 
big knot in your back and a big uh, pain in a muscle, and it's painful when they push on that and you know, get that all straightened out. But then you know you feel good afterwards. And that's that's why recessions are painful. You have an imbalance someplace; it's being pushed around, and everything's being aligned properly. And an imbalance meaning you know something that there's capital and labor misallocated to things just aren't profitable. So the recession we had in the United States back in you know the financial crisis, we had demand for maybe a million housing units per year. We were building two million units per year. And then the way it was being financed was too aggressive. And so that reworking of the housing supply issue and then all the follow-on effects on the debt markets, you know, that was uh, a challenging period. There was a lot of imbalances to be worked through. The thing is, you know, when you look at the the U.S. and global economy today, you know, those type of imbalances, it's not the imbalances that were in place then aren't in place now. To the extent there's imbalances to worry about, you know, the trade issue, the way global trade has been pulling back with uh, the geopolitical storms, that's a problem. One that's more manageable in the sense that you know, just political leaders, you know, can just be changed and, you know, that, that could settle out as opposed to, you know, just sort of a misallocation of capital during sort of that housing boom period. But that is one big issue. Another, another issue that's an imbalance that has been weighing on my mind is venture capital funding non-profitable companies. The internet? Well, uh, internet uh, tech firms, yeah. Look at in the IPO market in the United States, 60% of the IPOs through mid-year 2019 were for non-profitable companies. You know, these venture capital companies started a, a funding cycle that was driven by a philosophy called blitz scaling. The notion being you want to get big, and then once you're big, you can worry about achieving profitability. Not to say that they won't be successful in the future, but of course, the one in the news right now, and I'll, I'll be the one that says the name is WeWork, right? I mean, right. You're, you're hearing a lot about, okay, well, wait a minute. It's now been a couple of years. I'm not sure that the total length of duration, but there is now this kind of concern. Like, hey, when do you turn profitable? You're now, yeah. well, I don't know what the valuation is, $40 billion or $50 billion or something like that, whatever it is. And But yes. they, yet, yet I've never made a dollar, right? And now, who knows, right? That, it may end up, Two years from now, we'll look back and say, well, yeah, no, that was, they were brilliant and now they're very profitable, but that's the perfect example. Well, yeah, it's WeWork, Uber, Lyft, DoorDash. There is, there are a lot of those companies that had this notion, well, we'll be the Amazon of, because that's, that is the business practice that Amazon pursued. They got very big and then once they had, you know, operating margin, they turned into a profit machine. But not everybody can be Amazon, not everybody can be Jeff Bezos. And that's the challenge that some of these companies are dealing with. And that's having an impact because suddenly firms, as they're looking for that next round of financing, are being asked questions, you know, really? Are you going to be profitable? And that's, I think, going to take the sail out of the winds of some of these technology-driven markets for a while. That doesn't mean that tech is dead and those markets will never grow again. In fact, I think if anything, they have good long-term possibilities. You know, that's where you know, there's a clustering effect of the certain markets are attracting the technology talent and they, they have the firms there because they attract the talent and they go hand in hand. You know, there will be a slowdown, I think, for a little bit in that tech hiring and, and in the um, uh, venture capital funding of startups as they try and retrench towards focusing on profitability. But it's it's not the end until somebody can email me a pizza. You know, the tech world is going to come up with all kinds of crazy things that we never thought of that suddenly we all need. It should be a concern to the office market and that tech rents are driving a number of markets here in Canada to ever higher numbers. And that's all funded by VCs rather than profitability. Tech rents and there's the cost of labor too that's being driven by those tech companies, right? Salaries are going, are getting skyrocketed because those companies are paying a boatload of money to employees, which is 
you know, having whole sorts of disruptions throughout the sort of the labor market. Yeah, Canada, you got a couple other things though that that help you. One in particular, Vancouver. The tech market is booming there, and I wouldn't be as fearful of Vancouver compared to certain U.S. markets, in part because it's U.S. immigration policies that are helping Vancouver. If, for instance, I'm a hotshot programmer on uh, whatever the newest language is and have all the greatest skills. It's not just email anymore. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And I grew up in Iran. I can't work in the United States now. You know, They will not grant any visas to anybody from Iran. But you know, a tech firm opens up a campus in Vancouver, you know, hires you in. You know, uh, Canada's more opening there and more welcoming. And, you know, that person is now living in Vancouver. And the tech firm, maybe if they're headquartered in Seattle, they have those float planes going back and forth all the time. It's pretty easy to get to Seattle and uh, pretty easy to get to Vancouver. So, you know, from a regional perspective, it benefits. And that's, uh, you know, the openness and welcoming nature of the Canadian market is helping the tech side there in Vancouver. Even if there's a bit of a pullback based on the fact that you have that labor availability, I think we'll shelter a little bit. Let's take a little bit of a left turn here. So, Jim, before we started recording, Jim was telling us about he's kind of been on a bit of a road show and uh, he's got some jet lag arrived from Seoul well, yesterday, I believe, or a couple of days ago. And you were, you're kind of in a number of different Asian countries. I presume just kind of giving general feedback or guidance on different investment potential, different investment opportunities in the North American marketplace. So I'm curious, what questions are they asking, perhaps? What answers are you giving? Like, What is the guidance? What do the conversations look like when you're talking to these foreign investors asking about where should I go? What should it look like? How do those conversations play out? You know, the nature of the conversations varied a little bit based on the country. I was in Korea and Japan. In Korea, most of the questions came up around debt markets. There was less of a willingness to invest in the equity portion of the capital stack. Any sense why? A little bit of concern about being the investor in at the highest price if the market's at uh, sort of a near-term peak. A sense of maybe a little bit more safety being in the debt portion of the capital stack if there's a you know bit of a change. And so that's one issue. And then also, you know, the companies don't have a lot of capacity to do direct equity investment themselves. You, know, you could just show up in a country with deep pockets and try to start buying something, but you don't have networks or relationships to figure out, well, which broker should I talk to? How do I get on their list? How do I start seeing deals? It's not easy just to, even if you have deep pockets, it's not easy to start buying something. This is something that when some of the Chinese investors came over to North America, they got over their skis a little bit. I mean, look at uh, the Bental Center in Vancouver uh, and what was paid for that initially by Anbang. You know, that was you know, a group that you know, they had to overpay a little bit just to get people to notice them and you know, get some attention. But you know, so it's, if you don't have a big network of people already in place and previous experience, it's just hard to do a lot of direct equity investment on your own right away. Does the conversation of yield come up? Like when you're having these, are they, does it go well, that granular? Oh, yield, absolutely. I mean, that, it's funny you bring that up because in a sense, I didn't, even, I didn't even think of going there because it just sort of infuses all their decision to come over to North America. Because you know, here in Toronto, you have a handful of investors trading big assets back and forth in the GTA. And so cap rates are low because there's a lot of capital and, and just limited assets and uh, competitive bidding market if anything comes up. But to you know, the folks in Asia, you know, the cost of capital is so low for them because the culture's just safe. There's just so much of a focus on you know, saving money for the future. 
there's an excess of capital that has to go someplace, uh, rates are incredibly low, yield opportunities are limited. And so these folks, they need to put their money somewhere. And so even though rates may look low in, in North America, to them, it's an opportunity. Hmm. So while you're having these meetings in, in Asia, are you talking about different geographies? You're talking about different sectors to invest in? You know, How do those conversations play out? Yeah, the topic of Chicago in particular came up when I was in Japan. I suppose the Koreans, a number of the Japanese do have direct equity investments in the United States, and a couple of them had investments in Chicago. And it just so happened, the Monday when I was going around my first set of meetings in Tokyo, we had just put up in our blog an article about Chicago, and uh, the title was, What's Wrong with Chicagoland? Deal volume has been cratering in Chicago, and prices have started to fall for the commercial property market. And those two things, it's such a large market going hand in hand, it raises a lot of concerns about, well, is there something wrong? Are people pulling back for a reason? Is it indicative uh, for such a big market to be going through this that something like this might be coming to the rest of the country? And so that was a, a topic of discussion. Now, the truth is, Chicago, the issue was that they've redone property taxation. So everything in the loop in Chicago, on average, is going to see a 10% increase in property taxes. So NOI, Assumptions have all been changed. Buyers and sellers are further apart. The market's just going through a correction to bring in that change in uh, property income. And once they work through that and understand sort of what the economic value is, I think the market will clear and they'll move forward. So part of it's just a temporary pause. But you know, when it was interesting though, uh, you know, I write these things, I promote these things at different uh, places. You know, you go Twitter, LinkedIn, share all these articles you write. For some of these things, uh, when I was in Japan and giving that talk, people were just hearing this for the first time, even though they own some assets in those areas. And so part of you feels like, hmm, I've made some asset managers' life very difficult now because lots of questions are going to be coming back their way. But they probably should have been feeding that information up already. So it's... Uh, bit of a change there. <laughs> and, then, and what about different asset classes? Are they focused on everything or they have specific sectors that they're focused on? Yeah, sectors. It was interesting talking to folks because some of the same issues that investors in North America have been dealing with, they're raising the same questions about sectors. What is the future of retail? You know, is there any life in owning retail? Because you know, there's so many people talking about, oh, everyone's buying everything online, so there's no more life for retail, which I think is a gross exaggeration. The census department in the United States shows that only 10.7% of consumer activity is satisfied online. They've got detailed records on this stuff. There are definitely too many malls. We built too many things, but part of it's a geographical issue. You know, the industrial cities of the Midwest, malls built in the 60s and 70s to you know, sell clothing to manufacturing workers. Those malls just don't have the base that they were built to satisfy. The local areas have changed and that's become obsolete. Some of those cities, not necessarily that the real estate is obsolete, it's just real estate in, a, in an area that's obsolete. Whereas if you have the best of the best mall in New York or Boston or San Francisco, you're never going to sell it because you have high income earners and lots of spending and lots of foot traffic. So it's very much a game of have and have nots, which in a way doesn't help the equity investors because you know, you're not going to buy that mall. It's not there. But it helps people putting the debt out on those because that's, you know, they were worried about that issue. But, you know, you can put debt on some of those assets and they're going to be safe because you have a constant cash flow. The other thing that was interesting is so much of an interest in so-called alternative sectors, emerging new sector types, meaning, you know, more thinly traded sectors that don't have as much institutional interest. 
but an interest that's growing, that's going to be things like student housing, senior housing, self-storage, yeah, maybe data centers. And the motivations for that for a lot of folks was at first sort of yield focused that these were less efficient markets, so less information and wider operating margins. And so for you know, investors looking to earn a return, they looked attractive at first. But you know, some of the sectors I think have become uh, a little too active, uh, especially like student housing was one I'm a little bit concerned about. I think if you look at the, the cap rates for student housing properties and maybe benchmark them against a more generic garden apartment complex, which is going to be typical in kind of these college towns, used to be there was a pretty healthy margin in terms of the spread between that student housing cap rate and the garden apartment cap rate. What would you define as healthy? You know, it was like 50 to 60 basis points of spread. And, you know, but it's, it's narrowed uh, to, you know, less than 10 in some cases recently. I'm not sure what the right spread is, but it is the case that you have different operational issues to consider for student housing. You do all your leasing at once, and if you don't get the leasing done at the certain point in the academic season, your income for the year is really going to be poor. Plus, there's much bigger CapEx issues for student housing. If you look through some of the CMBS loan documentation on these things, you'll see the CapEx is stuff like replacing fire extinguishers that the college students were just uh, playing with. You know, you have to buy, you know, you're buying furniture, the building owner is, to use. And so at a student housing conference, just out of curiosity, walking through the vendor hall and asking the vendors about the furniture, what's so special about it, and the guy's showing me some furniture and he's highlighting well, this is vomit proof. And that, <laughs> you know, but you have to put money into those kind of issues. Those, because, are, those are real issues. Yeah, because it chews up, you know, they're chewing up a building more quickly. And so you have a higher CapEx issue. If you have a higher CapEx issue, maybe you got to be thinking about a little bit higher cap rate just to kind of cover some of your risks. Management intensive. I'm yeah. actually going to quote uh, as an American podcast I was listening to, but they're talking about student housing. And they mentioned there that when the landlords got a call because one roommate had drank another roommate's milk and what are you going to do about it? You know, that's not going to happen in an apartment full of, you know, people that are 30 plus. Right. Right. I'm not going to mention the podcast, but it was, it was, it made me laugh. <laughs> so maybe let's focus back on sort of differences in the American, sort of the Americas. You had mentioned Latin America, US and Canada. What are you seeing in the differences? You've kind of touched on Canada. I'm, I'm curious a little bit about what you're seeing in Latin America. And, and if, I mean, I don't know if you're considering that an emerging market or if it's really just a, like a no-fly zone right now, or are there pockets that maybe you do see some sort of positive trends? Yeah, I mean, my trip to Asia, Latin America wouldn't come up. That's just too far for these folks because when they're looking overseas, they're mostly looking for core stabilized type investments. And is the stability that really deters people from investing there? A little bit of that. It's also just, it's so difficult to get anything in Latin America. It's a, it's a semi-feudal society still, even, even with uh, sort of you know, modern states and the operations there. You still have large families controlling companies and real estate assets across national borders. And it's, you, know, you don't have as much liquidity in the region as you do in other parts of the world. So where investors from outside of Latin America have been successful, it's largely been coming in and building things and capital uh, coming in, taking an opportunistic type strategy and delivering modern assets that the area requires. You know, some local investors, they own a nice building. They're just going to hold it. It's, it's a source of wealth. It's not the fund level return type strategies that are driving the investment process in a large part of the region. But there are some changes that I've been optimistic about. Mexico has been going through some changes. They had a very 
disorganized land ownership market for a number of years. Owing back to, you go all the way back to the Mexican Revolution, they took all the land and they gave it to the peasants, which led to, and the peasants were not allowed to sell their land then. You had to give it to somebody else in your family. And so just over the generations, this led to a lot of very inefficient holdings of very small pieces of land that have been subdivided a number of times. They introduced some legislation, FIBRA, sort of like a restructure in the United States. But in addition to that, allowed holders of whatever their great-great-grandfather had left them through all the different you know, pieces being split up, that they could contribute their ownership in that land to a trust. And then the trust gives them some liquidity because it can shell shares in a trust. Uh, but it's also helped uh, the development of sort of modern publicly traded real estate companies in the region. So they've liberalized some of the rules around ownership, and that's helped deal activity in Mexico, as opposed to, say, Brazil, where the deal activity, it's been a little bit more hot money. The country's suddenly doing okay from an economic perspective, so money rushes in. And so it's given them a little bit more of a a volatile performance. When things are good, money comes in. When things are bad, money leaves. As opposed to Mexico, where it's mostly been domestically funded and the growth has been more about sort of the you know normalization of rules and uh, just the undoing some of the inefficiencies tied to the Mexican Revolution back more than a century ago. On that topic of you know government influencing uh, decisions, so I've got an anecdote. Of course, you would know better than anybody that anecdote is not data. But I was recently speaking with a Mexican investment group who were coming to Canada purely because they viewed the current government as unfriendly towards the wealthy or the landowners. And this was a, this was a group that represented multiple families down there. I have nothing to support that other than a conversation. But is that something that through your data you could validate is true? Well, data is simply the plural of anecdote. You collect enough of them, <laughs> then you got a data set. I like that. But the, you know, it does point towards a distressing tendency that is out there that if there's some economic challenges and budget challenges, well, let's soak the property owners. Let's soak the, look at these high quality buildings. I'm sure they have a lot of money. Let's, let's take away from them. You know, it's not just Mexico. California is the same way. The big rent control bills coming in in California uh, trying to limit uh, apartment market rents. But the thinking that folks have is that, you know, the owner of the building in California is going to be red-chuckling penny bags from the Monopoly game. When in truth, uh, a lot of the, the high-quality stuff in uh, the institutional quality assets in a place like California are owned by institutional investors that are managing money on behalf of teachers and sanitation workers and firefighters. So, you know, it's state public employees. So that's, that's something that's happening in uh, many parts of the world where, you know, because of budget shortfalls and spending needs, there's a thought that they can uh, you know, make up for some of it by you know, changing taxation on property owners. But I think that leads to other challenges. And with regard to Mexico, you know, there is sort of that sense of you know, trying to protect assets. You know, that there is always a risk there that some of the folks have. You mostly only see the money that leaves Mexico is sort of private money. You don't have say, state public pension money or insurance companies buying assets outside of Mexico. You know, there is, you know, insurance regulators in particular don't like real estate. They don't, for the longest time, the insurance regulators in most countries didn't allow insurance companies to buy real estate outside of their home country. The notion being that it's an illiquid asset and you're in a market where you have no expertise, you know, you're not there in that country. But over time, you know, better information availability has allowed some folks to kind of get over that hurdle. The Israeli investors started doing a lot in the United States, uh, other countries, you know, Taiwan, Japan, Korea, 
it is the case that there's much better information now than there was in the 60s, 70s, and it just makes it easier for these folks to get their head around the performance. Well, thanks, Jim. I mean, this has been really interesting. I have one final question before we let you go, and I'm going to draw from sort of a, a historic segment that Adam and I used to do, and I think it's only appropriate given kind of your scope. And so the question is this. We're giving you, let's call it $100 million, $10 million, whatever the money, dollar amount it is, and you could invest it in one asset class in one city, what would it be? Regardless of illiquidity, and we're talking all the Americas. This is a very broad yeah, question. So you, but you got, you got one opportunity to take this chunk of money and invest it in one asset class in one city. What is it? So it depends. <laughs> yield, peer, oh, peer yield. No. You're trying to get rich. <laughs> okay. Well, no, here's the thing. And here's what it depends on. It depends on what my, I don't care what the, how much money it is. I care about what my objectives are. If, if it was me winning the lottery and I suddenly have a big slug of capital and it's more of a wealth preservation issue, even with the rent control laws that have just come into New York and a lot of the uncertainty there, I'd buy an apartment building in Manhattan. The most stable, low-yielding product you can find in America, probably. Yeah, I'm not going to great much guar- yield. But- guaranteeing your great-great-children will have that money, basically. Right, yeah. right. And because there's always going to be a need for Manhattan. And that sort of stability would be there. Now, that doesn't work for a fund-type investor looking to you know hit double-digit IRRs for their investors. Okay, where, let's, where are let's, they going? Okay, let's change it to a five-year opportunistic investment. And we give you $100 million, but we take it all back at the end. So this is just... The yield is yours. Well, an opportunistic investment as opposed to a core investment. Well, whatever. As long as you get you get $100 million for five years and I'm taking it back and you need to make as much money off of it in that five-year horizon. You know, there's been a move of late. A lot of capital doing that in the institutional world is looking at the industrial sector because industrial has still a relatively high yield. There's rents are growing. And you know, while it is the case, I think that this thought that everybody's buying everything online and the malls are dead. I think that's overblown. It is the case, though, that the pace of spending of stuff, of purchases online has been growing faster. So there is run room in that sector. And I think that would be an easier sell in the near term. Great. I like that answer. Well, thank you very much. I'd like to thank our sponsor, First National, for powering the podcast. I'd like to thank Informa for uh, allowing us to record here as part of our forum series. Uh, and of course, thanks to the global property market. And Jim, thanks very much for your, your insights. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.